Hello, I'm Ramsey Janini. Welcome to Tales in the Groove 3, Copy Wrongs, starring Lawrence Lessig, John Oswald, and Mickey Mouse. In today's story, I want to cover a topic that fundamentally structures the relationships between culture, art, artists, and audiences. It's a topic that would take a lifetime to cover in all its manifestations. That is, copyright. Hooray! The story of copyright is vast and complex. It's a story that could be titled, The Good the bad and the ugly, uglier and downright abominable. It could also be called money, 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 because ultimately that's what it's all about, making money off of artistic works. And that's the good of it as well, because it's justifiable to protect the ability of a creator to earn an income from his or her creativity. But the ever-present question is, to what extent and at what social cost? Because copyright works against and can even contradict another fundamental pillar of culture the noble act of sharing. The notion of creative works as unique and original expressions of an individual soul is ultimately quite a new idea. Of course it has deep roots, but as far as becoming the commonly held definition of art and the artist, this notion only really begins to take hold in the late 18th century with the rise of the European cultural movement called Romanticism. It's no coincidence that our modern concepts of copyright and plagiarism rapidly develop alongside the rise of Romanticism. While such timelines and definitions are open to debate, it's clear that for most of human history, we had little need or use for these concepts. So while we've been suing each other over who copied what for some 400 years or so, we've been sharing and copying creative ideas for, if we take cave paintings into consideration, at least 40,000 years. But we don't have to go earlier than those 400 years to find great artists whose notions of artistry had very different expressions of originality. Take Shakespeare, for example. For most of his most famous plays, Shakespeare adapted plots, characters, and stories from well-known sources, and often quite recent sources, in a way that he wouldn't be able to today. Furthermore, did you know there are zero surviving Shakespeare manuscripts? Not a single line from his own hand has survived. What we have are copies of copies of copies. It's a similar story in music, particularly before Beethoven. Bach, Handel, Haydn, and Mozart all borrowed freely from each other, themselves, and perhaps especially the so-called lesser musicians. It wasn't about stealing, per se. Their sense of originality was something very different from our post-romantic understandings of a composer. Maybe more like the DJs of our time, they often expressed their compositional originality through cleverly arranging, mixing, and remixing commonly shared, loved, and understood musical ideas. Beethoven might have been the poster child of change towards musical romanticism, but for all his originality... His music is full of structures found in Mozart, Haydn, Bach, Handel, and earlier Beethoven. Copies of copies of copies. After Romanticism, copying from the past became less obvious and functioned differently, but fundamentally the relationships between the artist and his or her peers, past and present, may not have changed as much as some would like to think. After a century of Romanticism, perhaps the century of Romanticism, Stravinsky could still quip that lesser artists borrow, great artists steal. I make these points as an introduction to two of my favorite creative works exploring aspects of these social changes. The first is a book published in 2004 by attorney and Harvard Law professor Lawrence Lessig, who in recent months ended his campaign for the U.S. presidency. The book is called Free Culture, How Big Media Uses Technology and the Law to Lock Down Culture and Control Creativity. The book, which is completely free to download, by the way, is a call to action. Lessig argues that the ways that our copyright laws are currently constructed not only generally stifle creativity, 
They also threaten the existence of thousands upon thousands of hours of recorded sound and video currently decaying in vaults, trapped on nitrate-based stock by copyright laws devised to prevent the tiniest fraction of financially profitable characters and ideas from entering the public domain. Lessig by no means advocates the abolishment of any and all copyright. Instead, he strives towards a system that maximizes the ability of creative people to work from and with our common heritage, especially regarding forgotten works from long-departed creators, where there is little or no money to be made or lost. He outlines a history of U.S. copyright that, in being designed to protect printed works, was never quite appropriate for recorded video and audio in the first place. In more recent decades, it had failed drastically to cope with the development of recordable VHS and cassette tapes, making criminals of us all. And it is laughably inadequate in our internet age, when unlimited amounts of perfect copies of cultural products can be shared freely and almost instantly with literally billions of people. At the heart of Lessig's historicization of 20th century US copyright is a contradictory and surprisingly sinister figure of Mickey Mouse in all this. The success of the film The Jazz Singer in 1927 inspired Disney to release Steamboat Willie, featuring Mickey Mouse, in 1928. Steamboat Willie was the first Disney animation with synchronized sound, and it became a huge hit. Lessig takes care to point out all the ways in which Disney borrowed from recent culture in creating Mickey Mouse. Firstly, in the concept of film synchronized with sound from The Jazz Singer. And even more directly, according to Lessig, the film was a direct parody of Buster Keaton's great film from the same year, Steamboat Bill Jr. Furthermore, both films took inspiration from a 1911 song called Steamboat Bill. In that era, in every field of creative work, this borrowing and building upon the work of others was artistic common sense. It was one way in which culture functioned to create beauty, and the right to do so was protected by law and good sense. Walt Disney, like Shakespeare and many great artists before him, not to compare the two, borrowed ideas and characters from other creators. Chronologically, consider Snow White, Fantasia, Pinocchio, Dumbo, Bambi, Song of the South, Cinderella, Alice in Wonderland, Robin Hood, Peter Pan, Lady in the Tramp, Mulan, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, A Sword in the Stone, and The Jungle Book. They all borrowed from commonly shared stories. When Disney created Mickey Mouse, the average term of copyright for the small percentage of creative work that was copyrighted was about 30 years, with a maximum of 56 years. Under those laws, Mickey Mouse should have entered the public domain for anyone to use any way they liked, no later than 1984. But did that happen? Not a chance. Over the course of the last century, every time Steamboat Willie was about to enter the public domain, its copyright protection was extended. It was extended to 2003 in 1976, and in 1998, a law known as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act extended it to 2023. That's not its official name, but that's how some people refer to it. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is that, as I suggested earlier, these changes to law do and did not just affect Mickey Mouse. They also apply to the remaining 99% of our cultural heritage that we should all be able to legally use, adapt, remix, and keep alive. We're living in an unparalleled and contradictory age where the technologies to borrow, adapt, and share are becoming so powerful and accessible that the 1% are creating laws to protect their profits. And the most profitable way for them to do so is by creating blanket laws that affect us all, creators and consumers alike. Well, um, it's not really a summation of a book, but that's just a synopsis of some of the ideas that you'll find in it. It's a really wonderful book, and I highly recommend you download it for free and check it out. Some of the information in there might be a bit dated now, but it's still a wonderful piece of writing and incredibly relevant, if you ask me. 
I want to now turn to a beautiful artistic work that comments on much of the same history. The work I want to explore is an EP and an album called Plunder Phonics by Canadian composer John Oswald. The title of the album comes from a short paper he presented in 1985 at the Wired Society Electroacoustic Conference in Toronto. The paper was titled Plunder Phonics, or Audio Piracy as a Compositional Prerogative. You can source the paper quite easily with a Google search, and again, I highly recommend that you do so. It opens with the following paragraph. Musical instruments produce sounds. Composers produce music. Musical instruments reproduce music. Tape recorders, radios, disc players, etc. reproduce sound. A device such as a wind-up music box produces sound and reproduces music. A phonograph in the hands of a hip-hop-slash-scratch artist who plays a record like an electronic washboard with a phonographic needle as a plectrum produces sounds which are unique and not reproduced. The record player becomes a musical instrument. A sampler, in essence a recording transforming instrument, is simultaneously a documenting device and a creative device, in effect reducing a distinction manifested by copyright. From there, Oswald proceeds in a series of short segments to briefly sketch striking aspects of this confluence of the rights of creators to play with the clay of shared culture, and the ever-accumulating world of legal restrictions outlined so clearly by Lessig. For Oswald, Plunder Phonics was more than a title of a paper. It was also an artistic method of sorts, with which he had been creating new music since the 1970s. As for a definition of what plunder phonics actually means, well, it's been quite a nebulous term, but 18 years after the Toronto conference he stated in an interview that plunder phonics is a term I've coined to cover the counter-covert world of converted sound and retrofitted music where collective melodic memories of the familiar are minced and rehabilitated to a new life. Get it now? In the EP, and then album titled Plunder Phonics, the process entailed Oswald's composing bizarre and beautiful musical pieces entirely out of samples of a particular artist, subjecting them to all sorts of cuts, juxtapositions, and manipulations to create something entirely new, out of common materials. Some of the inspiration for this method came from his youthful explorations of the turntable as an instrument, where he would speed up Stravinsky and slow down bebop until it sounded like the song of a whale. On the album, Spring is a track that largely plays with sped-up samples of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. In the other direction, Pretender by Dolly Parton, generally speaking, gently slows down in tempo and pitch, resulting in her voice and the music descending deeper and deeper and deeper. But that dry description does its artistry a disservice. For another take, let's quote Chris Cutler from his excellent essay called Plunderphonia. Sounds like a dive downwards as a sped-up tape slows rapidly to settle into a recognizable, slightly high-pitched Dolly Parton. It continues to slow down, but more gradually now. The instruments thicken and their timbers stretch and grow richer. Details unheard at the right speed suddenly cut across the sound. Dolly is changing sex. She's a man already. The backing has become hallucinatory and strange. The grain of the song is opened up in the air, seduced by detail, lets a throng of surprising associations and ideas fall in behind it. The same thing is suddenly very different. Who would have expected this extraordinary composition to have been buried in a generic country song, 1,000 times heard already and 1,000 times copied and forgotten? Another inspiration for Oswald were the cut-up techniques of William Burroughs, resulting in tracks of frenetic and manic energy composed out of the materials of, for example, Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, James Brown, and Michael Jackson's Bad, respectively. Plunder Phonics is a work of art that operates on multiple levels. 
It is music that is beautiful in its own right, but also fundamentally subversive with regard to the structures of commercial enterprise and law that operate first and foremost to protect profit. In 1989, Oswald with his own money printed a thousand copies of the CD and distributed them for free to musicians and public institutions like libraries and radio stations. He carefully and consciously credited all of his musical sources and declared in the CD liner notes that this disc may be reproduced, but neither it nor any reproductions of it are to be bought or sold. Copies are available only to public access and broadcast organizations, including libraries, radio, or periodicals, and I hope me. While he did not seek or acquire permissions for any of the samples that he used on the CD, neither did he intend to break the law. He thought that by, among other things, explicitly declaring that the CD was not for sale or profit, that he was legally entitled to use the materials in the way that he had. But Michael Jackson, CBS Records, and the Canadian Recording Industry Association thought differently, and sought to destroy his efforts at freely sharing culture. Of particular concern, besides the music, was also that he had used what is a now iconic CD cover image of Michael Jackson's head and leather jacket from his bad cover superimposed on the tanned naked body of a Caucasian woman. John Oswald, who never intended to break the law, was accommodating towards illegal threats and complied with the destruction of all of the undistributed albums. In any case, he had the last laugh, as he never intended to make money out of it, and the notoriety from the case only added wind to the sales of the millions of perfect copies of both audio and image that began to spread further than they ever would have without their attempts to stop him. Oswald points out that one irony in all of this is that Michael Jackson himself, in the song Will You Be There?, samples over a minute of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony performed by the Cleveland Orchestra in 1961. Neither the orchestra nor Beethoven is given any songwriting credits, despite the fact that the sample was left entirely unedited. Tsk, tsk. Striking a bit further below the belt, Oswald once questioned who owns the copyright to Michael Jackson's face, and asked if subsequent plastic surgeons would sue for having their creative work defaced without permission. Harsh. To conclude this podcast, I'm going to again plunder from Chris Cutler's article called Plunderphonia. He concludes his section titled Copyright with this beautiful paragraph. The fact is that, considered as raw material, a recorded sound is technically indiscriminate of source. All recorded sound, as recorded sound, is information of the same quality. A recording of a recording is just a recording, no more, no less. We have to start here. Only then can we begin to examine, as with photomontage, which takes as its strength of meaning the fact that a photograph of a photograph is a photograph, how the message of the medium is qualified by a communicative intent that distorts its limits. Judgments about what is plagiarism and what is quotation, what is legitimate use and what, in fact if not law, is public domain material, cannot be answered by recourse to legislation derived from technologies that are unable even to comprehend such questions. When the same thing is so different that it constitutes a new thing, It isn't the same thing anymore, even if, like Oswald's hearing of the Dolly Parton record, it manifestly is the same thing and no other. The key to this apparent paradox lies in the protean self-reflexivity of recording technology, allied with its elision of the acts of production and reproduction, both of which characteristics are incompatible with the old models, centered on notation, from which our current thinking derives, and which commercial copyright laws continue to reflect. Thus, plunderphonics as a practice radically undermines three of the central pillars of the art-music paradigm. Originality, it deals only with copies. Individuality, it speaks only with the voice of others. And copyright, 
the breaching of which is a condition of its very existence. Well, that's the show. Both Lessig and Oswald went on from these works to continue creating many wonderful things. I hope I've inspired you to check out what they've been up to all these long, long years. But for now, so long and goodbye.